Today's episode of the Mission Daily is brought to you by Twilio. This October, Twilio is hosting Signal, the customer developer conference of the year. To grab your tickets, go to signal.twilio.com and be sure to use the code MISSION20 at checkout to receive 20% off your tickets. On this episode of The Mission Daily, Chad sits down with our producer Mike and tells his story about how he started the mission, his time in the military, and what his son has taught him about being a CEO. Enjoy. Well, cool, man. Well, thanks for having me on. I've been here for, what, like a month and a half? Yeah, thank you for joining the company, man. Love this place. We love you. So I don't know if uh, HR allows us to say that, but I just said it and I meant it. (laughs) Too bad. I received it with an open heart and mind. Awesome, man. (laughs) You know, a couple of weeks ago, we were on our team call. And as on the team call, I saw a baby floating around on our Google Hangouts (laughs) that we do. And I said, whose baby is that? And funny thing was, I didn't say it to anybody. I just kind of had that inner monologue with myself. And I'm like, cool, there's like a five-month-old just like floating around team mission headquarters. You've never found a baby before? Well, no hangover flying. action. <laughs> yeah. I know everybody I know, listening right, is thinking, yeah. Yeah, Carlos. Exactly. No, it was more of the baby's flying around and I'm kind of thinking to myself like, oh, whose kid is that? But nobody claimed responsibility for it, right? Which is kind of weird. I mean, child services <laughs> might say something. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember hearing you bring that up, but... No, um, well, that's because I did it. I just kind of sat there. We do try to address questions on our team call, so... Right, yeah. well, I, and, I, and that was also my first team call too, so that was probably... Something I, I learned later, which was lesson learned. Everybody out there always ask questions during team hangouts. Otherwise, there's going to be floating babies. Same. And off of team calls, too. I mean, we were just talking about this earlier. Like I was talking with a colleague and there were some misconceptions that were basically all my fault yeah. for not properly explaining something the first time. Right. And so we had been on the completely different page for about a month. We rectified that informational challenge and now we're both on the same page and it feels great but you don't know until you ask and yeah. obviously like assumptions the motherhood of all failure and right gotta check gotta ask the questions quality of questions reflect the quality of your life i think it was i'm paraphrasing tony robbins a little bit but i remember i heard that a couple of years ago and that was it's that, so true dude so that true. moved me so much yeah like that just really like struck a chord in me but so to answer the question that everybody's wondering that was our baby on the call. Right. Well, who's our? Like, so this is the other thing too, everyone. The other thing was as a producer of, of the Mission Daily and, you know, joining Chad's team, not only was there a floating baby around, but I just also found out that you were married as well. And yeah, not so only that. Stephanie's my wife and Grayson is our son. Yeah, yeah. So another thing. And Toasty, the dog. Yes. Toasty was our practice child. He's a golden doodle who yeah. is, has a lot of personality. He's two years old now. Yeah. We got him with the explicit purpose that this is going to be a, a trial to get us to pay attention, be more mindful, be more present, see if we can take care and nurture a living thing. Side note, we're also going to be talking about that in a future episode of the Mission Daily about practice parenting with dogs and children <laughs> and marriage and all yeah. that good stuff. We're against animal testing for some things, but when it comes to others, we're, I mean, hey, if, if you do it right. We love Toasty here at the mission, but, yeah, he's but, a great, today, great but today, since as a producer and as somebody that came up on board, one of the things that I notice is, is as our fearless leader and also somebody with the vision as, as wide as the Pacific Ocean about media and the landscape and what you're trying to build here, I don't really know you. Like, frankly, I, I, I don't, I've, I've met you in person. I've been following your work for quite some time. You know, I know you've been on Medium since the earlier days and we're going to, we're going to cover all that good Let's stuff, but I have no idea who you are. And I think, and if I don't know who you are, especially as the guy that's behind the scenes every day, how many of us listeners 
know who Chad Grills is, right? Hey, it's a great point. If yeah. anybody cares, <laughs> well, I think, you know, I think there's a care. lot of people that care. Uh, more cool. importantly, the the fact that your last name is Grills is awesome. Thanks. It's actually so after the revolution, our family dropped the Which y, revolution, the American. There was uh, a lot. There was a lot of them. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so after the only one that mattered. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So yeah, our family's from England and. If you're familiar with Bear Grylls, you know, he spells his name with a Y. Yeah. And I guess as a means of protest, maybe we were too lazy to go to the tea party. I don't know. But yeah. we just decided, let's just drop the Y and just do an I. Oh, there you go. There you go. Is there anybody famous in your family? You know, because every like family has some sort of like cool ancestor. My cousin there... wrote the book Cool Hand Luke. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, when he was in prison when he did it too. Yeah. That's a crazy story we can talk about another That's time. That's pretty online. intense. So yeah, the writing... Writing is uh, strong with this one. Yeah, <laughs> as Obi-Wan would say, yes. Very cool. I'm not off the top of my head, yeah. but I would dispute the definition of famous. Not, I mean, not that it's yeah. open for dispute or anything like that, but the kindness and just like wonderful family that I have on both my dad and my mm -hmm. mom's side. So of course, I think there's the line in Anna Karenina where it's like every family is alike in their unhappiness or so you know something right. like that like every family has its own quirks and my family on my dad's side and my family on my mom's side they're roughly the you know the same they have their quirks and everything but mm -hmm. they're filled with wonderful people and yeah love was them. there a curiosity when you were younger to find out who your family was where they came from not at all no no i know that that's there and a lot of people are very interested in their yeah. ancestry was never really too interested in that so. yeah and you were but you were in the military too army right i was yeah i didn't join until i was 21 but was there influence from your family to do that? Not at all. Yeah, no. <laughs> not not at all. So my grandfather, no direct influence, of course. So my grandfathers were in the military. My dad's side, my grandfather was in the Korean War. He was in an infantry unit. And then my grandfather on my mom's side flew refuelers all throughout the Cold War, basically. Whoa. Yeah. That's pretty, that's pretty gnarly. It's one of those things where I don't understand how somebody deals with that level of stress and pressures. And so my grandfather on my mom's side had a really troubled youth and childhood. He actually found his mother dead in a ditch at a very, very young age. I think he was six when he found her. So later on, he would join the Air Force. He went on to have five children. And during this whole time, he's doing daily work where the message is, there's going to be a nuclear war. And you need to be ready. There's going to be a nuclear war next week and you need to be ready. And analyzing my own experiences in the military, thinking about how difficult it was to make long-term plans when we had the prospect of a deployment next month. Oh, it just got changed. It might be the month after that. Now the month after, you know, that's nothing compared to an entire culture surrounding you telling you that the world's going to end. <laughs> Yeah. And, and you're going to help it end and you're going to like it. <laughs> yeah. See, that's crazy, man. Because like, you know, I was in the military too. I was in the Marines for four years from 2002, 2006. And I always felt my experience was that of anticipation. Like it was either you're going to live or you're going to die. Right. Yeah. Like there, and in peacetime situation, it was kind of like, well, here's your career options. Or like, guess what? There's this kicker for the GI Bill. When you get out, you can go work in IT, you know, or you can go work in, in corporate. But I felt like the post 9-11 wars... I don't know if there was the same level of anticipation when it came to Cold War because there was like a nuclear bomb. But like with 9-11, there was actually a legit war going on. There was a, an enemy that we did not know. You were in infantry though, right? Yes. So yeah. for you, it was like... So I qualified to do anything when I entered the military and took the ASVAB. And I did ROTC at my college or through their partner school or whatever. Right. And 
right at the same time, I had an option to contract in, which makes you exempt from deployment. I didn't sign. I wasn't interested in that. I chose to deploy as an enlisted guy with my unit. And I'm so, so glad I did. I know I've shared that story a little bit before, right? but I can't hammer home the fact that that was the perfect choice for me, for my situation. And I got education and knowledge, you know, real world direct experience. I couldn't have got anywhere else. I couldn't have paid for that anywhere else. What unit were you in the army? So I was in first of the 175th infantry, okay. uh, alpha company. And okay. we were part of the 58th brigade combat team when we right. deployed. So we used to be part of 29th infantry division. And later we changed over and fell under the 28th infantry division, which is like collection of units from Pennsylvania and Maryland and all over. What was the worst <laughs> duty station you were ever at for a long period of time, prolonged period of time? You know, what's weird. The worst duty station I was at was probably one of the old military bases we had to stay in for our annual trainings because I was in the guard. I was, even though, so I joined the guard for six years and some of the annual trainings. So for two weeks out of the year, you do these annual trainings. Those were the worst. Really? Yeah. Why is, why is that? Because I joined to go to Iraq and to go to Egypt and everything. And that was part of the, I think that if you sign up for something and then you complain about it afterwards, <laughs> that is like the epitome of who I don't want to be. But the one thing I did not sign up for was not preparing and not learning at a rapid pace. And so a lot of these annual trainings were incredibly painful for me because we were doing all of the things that didn't matter. We were doing paperwork. We were just checking the boxes so that our unit and the military could avoid liability later on. We were having people, you know, beg you to say you were having trouble sleeping so you could get, you know, claim this amount of disability. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I have you know, right. huge respect for people who legitimately have, you know, challenges and who sure. legitimately need, you know, more support. Yeah. But there were just a lot of like wonky things with the training where you're like, man, this could be running a lot better. <laughs> like, right. You know, this, this could be so much cooler. This could be way more fun. And the people that I was friends with in my unit, the handful of people that kind of shared the same sentiments, and we would always dream up ideas for what the guard and what the military could be. So that was a lot of fun. But the actual like formality of the military, not so much. Did you ever say anything? Did you like raise your hand and you were like, excuse me, sergeant? No, no, no. Because <laughs> it, it's very apparent that you can't compare. Right. Or, you, you know, you can't change anything from the inside. And yeah, it's sure. arguable. Or this is the military. Right? Yeah, yeah definitely. National, yeah. And it's, even from the outside, it's an open question as to if we can reform or improve any of the things in our defense industry. So it, that has, you know, remains to be seen whether or not we're going to be able to fix it or whether or not it's going to be just more of the same. But I did a recruiting campaign for the military and that was eye-opening for me because again, just like that training, yeah. I had a rough idea of what the budget was and it was so much fun because I got to do voiceover work. I got to do videos. I got to do copy and it was, I was doing everything I could. And again, going back to that budget, I was like, wow, you could do so much more with this. Like what? You tell me, so, tell me more about that. So much more. So I can't share the the exact amount, but sure. just, just imagine that, you know, the military has $30 million for a campaign mm -hmm. and basically they spend 28 of it on the wrong thing and 2 million on the right thing. Well, if you can see that and if you can correct that in balance, that's really exciting. And I love the idea of how do you turn marketing into a profit center for businesses or whoever's putting up that money and that's one of the things at the mission that we have created an answer for. Yeah. So it's one of those things that looking back, there's a lot of like frustrating things, but that frustration and that divine discontent 
that is what leads you to, you know, the next challenge, the next adventure. And it kind of presents the shining city on the hill that you can kind of like aspire to and move in the direction of. So a little ironic, I did research on you on past interviews when you were sitting literally like 10 feet from me. <laughs> so that was kind of funny. I was like, oh, there's some past interviews that you had done. I think there was an interview you did when Life Learning was still oh, around, yeah. right? And I was like reading this article on Medium about you. And I was like, you know, I could be asking Chad. He's just sitting there right now. This was kind of interesting, just researching past interviews and projects you've done on. And you also wrote six books, which yeah, I just finished my second one. And that oh, was awesome. just nuts. But then you wrote six and you said only one of them was good. Yeah. And I mean, that was pretty generous too, because I this, that book was out for a day and then I unpublished right. it. I was like, oh, screw this. Like, I'm going to make this way, way better before I republish. They were to certain people's standards. That's fine. Yeah. But they weren't to my standards. And I think if you look into the history of how great books are created, oftentimes they're created in a creative burst that lasts a couple of weeks, a month, two months. But the best ones are created over a much longer time scale. Right. And the author or authors go back to them again and again and again. And any book that you want to last for a couple hundred or a couple thousand years is going to require a big team. And how we think about books and authors now is going to change. This is not the future of generally anytime you see a book with a single author, it's not going to last a long time. The books that last the longest amount of time have multiple authors, and most of the authors don't really care about recognition in the present. They care about the story and how that story is protected over the long term. So that's what I'm interested in. And my books just made it crystal clear to me of what a fool's errand it was to try to be your own author or to try to get into a situation where you become like the best-selling author under a big publishing house like Simon & Schuster. Those are not paths that, for me anyways, they weren't going to give me any type of satisfaction. And moreover, they weren't going to help me fix any of the challenges that I saw in the world. And the challenges that I saw in the world could only be fixed with a much, much different approach. And so that's what we're doing here. Well, and it, it's funny you mentioned writing because I had read that when you were in Egypt and Correct me if I'm wrong, but it was in deployment for Mubarak, the ousting of Mubarak, or part of that was. So we've had an infantry battalion in Egypt since 71, I think, that has always been stationed there. And it's typically viewed as like the vacation deployment. And so everybody in was- In Egypt? Yeah. So is every, this Cairo or? No, it's in a town called Sharm el-Sheikh. There's a military base there. And it's funny, that town is actually controlled by the Russian mob. So people, it's, so, it's so funny when people think that like America sucks or anything like that. It's like, you haven't traveled. <laughs> You haven't traveled very far until all of your best towns and tourist destinations are controlled by the mob of another country. Right. <laughs> yeah. So you were there. And then is that where you learned how to write? Or like, where did this, where did this journal well, writing stories for as long as I can remember, almost compulsively? I've had stories to tell, or I've been doing fan fiction. My earliest writing was Ninja Turtles fan fiction, basically. And then it was. How old were you when you did that? I mean, actually, some of my earliest memories were, you know, going out, writing outside sketching out pictures and things like that because I was always about trying to illustrate mm -hmm. stories and things like things like that. Okay. And then by the way, love Ninja I, Turtles. Oh, and probably to answer your question, probably like five. Yeah. Somewhere around there. I love Ninja Turtles, by the way. Same. Like, yes. Yeah. I mean, just fascinating. It's yep. like the one of the best groups of four that you could possibly form in any genre. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I like Michelangelo the best because he was always eating pizza. 
He was, I mean, he was the culture builder for sure amongst yeah. the Ninja Turtles. Like people think it was Splinter. I don't think so. I think like the brevity, the lightness, like the humor. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like yeah, he's one of my favorites. Our, I feel like Max, our, uh, our engineers are Michelangelo. I love Michelangelo. Yeah. There we go. Everybody Donatello does. It's pretty cool too. Yeah. He's got the, the big stick. <laughs> it is decided. There we go. But going back to writing, you know, one of the things that I, I have found, especially in in most authors, is that they beat themselves up a lot. There's yes. a lot of this, like... I have a theory about that. God, you know what? It's like, and you know, I, I've been writing for probably 10 years. And my early days, I used to beat the crap out of myself. Just I would just compulsively just criticize every single thing I wrote. Like, I would write a sentence and I'd be like, this is not good, right? And then I would never get anything done. I learned a while ago that the best therapy for me in terms of writing was just to not be critical of anything I wrote. That's what editors are for. So I know all you aspiring authors out there, don't worry about what you're writing. That's what editors are for. And they're the ones that are going to just rip your stuff apart. But what's your take on that? Like, what, what do you think is really would help authors or writers, anybody? I think they should be easier on themselves and harder on their work. So I think that that type of frustration with not creating something that's incredibly you know amazing that's just a sign that you have great taste and a lot of people don't want to you know hear that but it's a sign and a signal that you know what is good and you know more importantly you know what you're capable of so i view that as a really positive thing what's not a positive thing and i'm speaking from personal experience yeah. here is when that manifests in beating yourself up literally and letting yourself either go or you know, damaging yourself or trying to like numb yourself with like drugs and alcohol. That's what writers are famous for. Yeah. And I think that the reason why that happens is because our society doesn't view creators and writers in the right light. We have engineers where in Silicon Valley, a good engineer can command a couple of million dollars a year. They're going to have generally be set for life. And the best engineers command even way higher salaries. And people know that they can be a hundred times more effective than just a mediocre engineer. Hmm. Why don't we view writers like that? Uh, writer's stories are something that is, in many cases, way more anti-fragile than lines of code or technological hardware, because these are stories that can live on indefinitely on our neural networks or other people's in their brains, in, in their culture. And that's way more exciting to me than a lot of software and technology products. So in many cases, writers who are 100x better than their peers, that's something that the marketplace has not allowed for and is not thinking about. Publishers do not understand this, and Silicon Valley doesn't understand it. Hollywood doesn't understand it, and that's fine with me. I, I'm not trying to convince anybody. I'm just I'm going to take note of that and then build a company that does respect that. Yeah, you're just going to be you. Yep. Did you ever put yourself through like that masochistic process? Oh, where, of course. Yeah, tell me. <laughs> I, I think I think we need to hear about that. Like, tell yeah, me. of course, of course. Thinking that you know to be a good writer, you need coffee or you need a stimulant or you need the right inspiration. Like, I mean, there's so many different traps. Right. Or thinking that you have writer's block <laughs> and just like all kinds of neuroses crop up, both real and imagined, when you don't get the story out, when you don't allow yourself to speak or communicate or try to get what you're going for conveyed to other people. So yeah, I mean, I've just basically been through the ringer. Like you could, you could name it and I've probably felt that emotion or frustration with the creative process. But, and the, the biggest tip there, if I could offer one piece of advice to anybody that's like struggling with that or struggling who wants to create something is 
you have to find the others. We've done episodes about this, but isolating yourself to do creative work only works up to a certain extent. Ultimately, the best ideas come when you're collaborating with others, when you're in a very dynamic environment where you have real rapport with people, where people can work together long enough to build trust, camaraderie, fellowship. That's where it gets really exciting because now you can come together to build a creative project that can stand the test of time. And this whole idea of an author getting a big advance and then going to a cabin or something to write a book alone, that only happens because our culture tends to hate people who are very imaginative or people who have a lot of ideas because that's exhausting to many other people. And if you have the ideas, you're trying to get them out there. You're trying to like share them and everything. But for most other people, that's just overwhelming. And yeah, so I, I, I'm going to disagree with you on the coffee thing because <laughs> our dear friend Kamal Ravikant, shout out to Kamal. But I, I had posted on Twitter like a while ago. I said, what are the best writing tips? out there and i just kind of made it like a public discussion and kamal was the first one to respond back he goes coffee period <laughs> lots and lots of coffee <laughs> and so i'm gonna err on the side of that and so here this is a really important point because i when i said that the first time language leaves a lot to be desired because there are personal things that are going to work for you that just won't work for somebody else and i was definitely i'm always going to be biased you know towards my own subjective experiences and from my own personal experience, that's a trap I fall into is thinking that stimulants are a prerequisite or a necessity. But I also know they make it way easier to get started. That's, oh, yeah. that's for sure. I, yeah, I respect anybody that gets it done, basically. How they get it done, hey, that's up to them. That's why they're called stimulants, man. It's yeah. hard, to, hard <laughs> to get off. The Mission Daily is brought to you by the Twilio Signal Conference. Join the mission team on October 17th through the 18th in San Francisco. And when you join us at the conference, you can use the code MISSION20 to get 20% off. Hey, listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.